I would like to read again the text which we read last Friday night, Matthew 20:28, and with this, John the 20th chapter and the 21st verse, last part. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. And with that, John 20, 21, last part, Jesus says, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Jesus came for a certain purpose, and he sent us out for the same purpose. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he wants us to go out in his name for his sake and minister to others and give our lives. Of course, we can't give our lives a ransom in the sense that he did, but we can unite with him in serving others and we can spend our lives in service and sacrifice and thus share with him the joy of seeing men and women reconciled to God. You know, there is something wonderful, dear friends, about the full surrender that these verses picture. If the whole is on the altar, the giving of the part is already settled. It's merely a matter of guidance. Isn't that right? You have heard of the man, perhaps, who is being baptized in his clothes, as sometimes takes, sometimes happens. And someone noticed that he had his wallet in his back pocket. And they suggested as he was going down into the water that perhaps that ought to be taken out. He was going down into the water to be baptized. He said, no, I want to be baptized pocketbook and all. He had the thought, didn't he? Yes. If all is given, it includes all our money. You know, this money question is an interesting question, dear friends. We're told that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Paul tells us that, writing to Timothy. I think of many who have gotten very close to the kingdom, but when the Spirit of God put his hand on that point, it turned back. Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness and lost his soul. Judas sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Ananias and Sapphira made a pledge. And then their selfish souls got to thinking of, oh, how much they had given. And so they decided to not give so much, and yet pretend they had. The Spirit of God took the lives of both of them as a warning to the early church. And as we enter into the repetition of Pentecostal experiences, we're going to see things that will thrill the heart on the one side and sadden our souls on the other. As men and women repeat the experiences of the early disciples, 
as they sell their property and lay the money down for the finishing of the work, what a wave of gladness will sweep from heart to heart. But doubtless there will be some like Ananias and Sapphira that will allow money, the love of money, to hinder the blessing that God wants to give. I think of an experience that I witnessed 30 years ago. We were holding a series of evangelistic meetings in Oakland, California. And among the many who were attending was a very fine-looking woman and her daughter. They gave evidence of being persons of culture, refinement. They came night after night, accepted the Sabbath, decided to be baptized, were in the baptismal class week after week. They even anticipated some of the points of truth. I remember how willing they were to lay off their jewelry before that was ever presented in public. But one night they weren't at the meeting. And another night they weren't at the meeting. And as the Bible worker visited them and we talked with them, we finally discovered what the matter was. The tithe had been presented. And the axe had struck the root of the tree. The selfish heart had not been, in that particular case, interfered with by embracing the Sabbath. It occasioned no cross or sacrifice for those particular individuals. But when the truth of God on the money question was presented, it cut right across the natural inclination. They turned back to walk no more. Sad, wasn't it, friend? Sad? Oh, yes, so sad. I remember another experience in the city of New Orleans where we were holding evangelistic meetings. There was a father and mother, two children, that attended the meetings there week after week. They had gotten interested through the health message. They had laid aside their harmful indulgences, given up beer, cigarettes, Coca-Cola, other stimulants, narcotics. They had embraced the diet question. It had brought them a great increase of, in health. They felt better and thanked the Lord for it. They too embraced the Sabbath. But I remember one night as we sat down to talk together in their home, it was evident that something had happened that had brought a curtain between that family and us. And I wondered what it could be. And so as we sought in a tactful way to probe, as we were having the visit and the study that evening, finally he looked across at me and he said, I want to ask you a question. He says, is it true that everybody that joins the Seventh-day Adventist Church has to sell all their property and give it to the church? And what do you suppose I said to him? 
Well, you might think that the easy answer to that was just tell him, no, of course not, and go on, while he breathed a sigh of relief. Well, of course, I did tell him that. Probably he did breathe a sigh of relief. Because, of course, no one who joins the Seventh-day Adventist Church is required to sell everything he has and turn it into the church. You all know that. I suppose somebody had told him that. He was getting worried. But after he'd gotten fully relieved from his problem, as we sat there, I said, now, brother, now that I've made that plain, I want to tell you something else. I said, all I've told you is true. But I said, there's something else that's true, too. If you become a Seventh-day Adventist, you're going into a program and entering a pathway that will eventually take everything you've got. And I said, you may as well face that fact and settle it with God before you ever start up that road. Is that the truth? Did I tell him the truth? Yes. You know it's the truth. Friends, I'm so glad it is. I'd hate to be in something that wasn't worth everything. You know, now and then we have a wedding here in Askell Hall or on the campus. And the minister says to the young man, will you leave everything you have and everybody and take this young woman and keep yourself only under her? And will you share with her everything in sickness and health, prosperity, adversity, as long as you both shall live? And suppose he should say, well, really, that's asking quite a bit, isn't it? I think we'd better make it about 50% or 75%. There's some things that I'd like to keep over here. She's to have nothing to do with, nothing to say about, and no part or interest in. If you were the bride, how would you feel? Or if it were the other way around? My dear friends, there's something about love that asks for everything, and there's something about love that responds with everything. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. And you and I know that that wasn't a loan. It was a gift. The greatest gift, the best gift in heaven, and with it went all heaven. It included all heaven. It was all poured out in that one gift. And when we stop to think that the ones to whom that gift was given were the most unworthy ones in all the universe, that's what you and I are, aren't we? Ah, oh, friends, there's something about that that touches the heart, isn't there? Something about that that touches the heart. But while it cost the heart of the infinite Father an infinite struggle to give that infinite gift, it was in no sense giving, given grudgingly or reluctantly. The great fount of love burst forth 
And that tide, that river, that great river of love has been flowing from the foundation of the world in irrepressible streams. And you and I are invited to share in it. God loves a cheerful giver. Yes. You and I do too, don't we? Yes. Thank God for it. Thank God for it. I want to note very briefly tonight two examples of giving that cheer my heart. The first is in Exodus, the 25th chapter. We'll take one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Exodus 25, beginning with the first verse. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Bring me an offering. God is asking for an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and badger's skin and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Tell me, did they all give the same gift? Oh, no. Do you suppose everybody had an onyx stone? No, there weren't many onyx stones in the camp. But were there enough to take care of what God had planned for? Yeah, yeah. Do you suppose there were very many of those badger skins in that camp of Israel? No, not so many. But there were enough to take care of that covering that was put over the sanctuary. And what about this, these stones to be set in the effigy? You know, they were, and then the breastplate. There were several kinds, 12 kinds of beautiful, precious stones. You suppose very many people had those? No. But the people that did have them said, Thank God I have something God wants. I have something God needs, and God shall have it. Is that right? Yes. Probably everybody had something. You notice God made a great list of things that were needed in order that everybody might have a part. Well, now let's see how it turned out. Go over here, please, to the 36th chapter of Exodus. And we see the result. Verses 5 and 6. This is after the work was started and the program was going on to build a sanctuary. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. How did the plan work? Why, friends, they had an overflow. And so the sixth verse says that Moses gave commandment and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp. And imagine a proclamation like this. Listen. Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. Did you ever hear a proclamation like that? Listen, friends, you're going to hear it very soon. That's right. That's right. That proclamation is going to be made, friends, and it'll be the last time. 
And there'll never again be an offering for the sanctuary. Never again an opportunity to sacrifice for the work of God. We're living in the hour. And that's going to happen. Am I right? You know it's right. Now let's turn over to Acts. Say before I leave that though, I want to read you a most interesting comment on this. In the book, Councils on Stewardship, page 203. Moses' plan to raise money for the tabernacle. It's interesting. The plan of Moses in the wilderness to raise means was highly successful. There was no compulsion necessary. Moses made no grand feast. He did not invite the people to scenes of gaiety, dancing, and general amusement. Nor did he institute lotteries or anything of this profane order to obtain means to erect the tabernacle of God in the wilderness. God commanded Moses to invite the children of Israel to bring the offerings. Moses was to accept gifts of every man that gave willingly from his heart. That's all God's interested in tonight, is offerings that come from what? Willing hearts, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Very well, let's go over to Acts, the second chapter. You remember in the first chapter, we read of how Jesus, after instructing his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection, left them there at the Mount of Olives, told them to go back to Jerusalem and tarry until they received the Holy Spirit. <coughs> they got into unity. They laid aside all their differences, had a wonderful prayer meeting, confessed their sins one to another, and when they came to that experience of perfect unity, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out. That's the second chapter. You remember Peter's sermon under the influence of the Holy Spirit and all the other apostles standing up with him. And friends, what happened? Why, friends, all heaven had been poured out in that gift of the Spirit, and now the people responded. They asked Peter what to do. They were convicted. And you remember that when they found out how many had been added to the church that day, there were how many? 3,000. That's the 41st verse. 3,000 souls in one day. Many of these were people that had been listening to Jesus through the three years before. And some of them had been ministered to by the disciples before. But now they came out fully and took their stand and they were so happy in it. In fact, verses 46 and 47 speaks of their gladness and their praising God, and others kept coming in. Very well. Now you notice it says in the 44th verse, And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. That showed they were what? Converted. It, sure, it surely did. It showed there was a great need, too. You know why there was such a need. Many of them were ostracized, thrown out of the synagogue, thrown out of their homes, and uh, God moved upon the hearts of the people who had something to make it possible for the people that didn't have anything to live. 
as I was calling your attention to previously, it didn't enrich Peter and John because the very next story in the third chapter is the story of Peter and John coming up there to the temple and healing the lame man, and they said, silver and gold, what? Have I none. What did they do with all that that was laid down at the apostles' feet? Well, you know what they didn't do with it, don't you? It didn't go to line their pockets and fit them out with all the most expensive things. Not a bit of it, friend. They were interested in seeing the work of God advance. Now we'll go on into the fourth chapter. You notice this is after the apostles had been arrested and put in prison and uh, had been beaten. Now they came back and told their story and the multitude of believers were glad that they had been released and they prayed and the Spirit of God came upon them again. And verse 31 says, when they had prayed, Acts 4.31, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Wasn't that a wonderful example of love? 34th verse says, None lacked, as many as were possessors of lands or houses, sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Well, that was a time of crisis. The particular way it was handled there was not always to be God's plan, but my dear friends, the supreme dedication of the life, the placing upon the altar, everything that a man has and owns is always God's requirement, isn't it? Yes. In many cases, in most times, God leaves the stewardship with the individual, and we need to recognize that principle. But my dear friends, the fact that the stewardship is left with the individual in no way lessens God's claim. Not a bit of it. In no way lessens the dedication, the sacrifice that we are supposed to make. Now, I want to read you a wonderful promise here that all this is coming again. Thank God. I'm reading now from a little book called A Call to Medical Evangelism, page 22. The messenger of the Lord says, The experience of apostolic days will come to us if men will be worked by the Holy Spirit. Would you like to see a lame man leap? Would you like to see a dead man get up? Would you like to see the sick healed? Would you like to see thousands of people converted in a day? Well, friends, it's coming. The experience of apostolic days will come to us if men will be worked by the Holy Spirit. The Lord will withdraw his blessing where selfish interests are indulged, but he will put his people in possession of good throughout the world if they will unselfishly use their ability for the uplifting of humanity. His work is to be a sign of his benevolence. So, friends, if you and I will yield our lives to the unselfish spirit of Jesus, that love will flow through us in a great tide that will sweep away the covetousness, the selfishness, 
It will take our means, and the means will flow into the channels of benevolence, and with it will come the mighty working of God to bring in many souls into his church and to finish the work. Now, with that, I want to put an interesting promise that the Lord's Messenger wrote in the uh, Old Gospel Workers, page 298. The Lord has made men his stewards and has entrusted to them the means to carry forward his work. When the poor, anybody here that's poor? Now listen carefully. When the poor have done all they can do to advance the cause, the Lord will bring in men of means to carry on the work. Isn't that interesting? Why do you suppose he lets the poor people give first? Well, there's several reasons you can think of, can't you? I like that. When the poor have done all they can do to advance the cause, the Lord will bring in men of means to carry on the work. Praise God for that. Well, I suppose some of you are thinking that perhaps I'm going to give you an opportunity to give. And I am. But not right now. I have some things of a very practical nature that I want to bring to you first. And I'm so glad that I can do it sincerely, friends. I want to give you some cautions. The Spirit of God is very sensible, and he wants us to be. In the first place, I want to call your attention to a clear statement that not everybody is to do the same thing at the same time. You'll find that in early writings, page 57. Now, I'm documenting these statements I'm making, so I don't want you to take my word on any of them. This is early writings, page 57. I saw that a sacrifice did not increase, but it decreased and was consumed. I also saw, now notice she saw this, I also saw that God had not required all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time. But if they desired to be taught, he would teach them in a time of need when to sell and how much to sell. Isn't that wonderful, friend? Can people be taught of God? Why, yes. That's what Jesus says over here in the sixth chapter of John, the 45th verse. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Can people be taught of God when to sell property? Why, sure they can, if they want to be. Where is the place for my property? On the altar. Who's to tell me when to sell it? God is. Who's to tell me what to do with it when I sell it? God is. They shall be all taught of God. Why, would God do that for me? Would God do it for anybody else? Yes, he will, sir. This question of handling money for can be a sweet, precious fellowship with you and God, if you're willing for it to be. God had not required all of his people to dispose of their property at the same time, but if they desired to be taught, he would teach them in a time of need when to sell and how much to sell. Now, you remember that Peter recognized that. Turn back here to the fifth chapter of Acts. You remember that after the fourth chapter tells this wonderful story of the different people 
selling their property and laying the money down at the apostles' feet. Then the fifth chapter tells about Ananias and Sapphira. They made a pledge, but when it came time to pay the pledge, what, is, what, what had happened? Well, they had a change of heart. But instead of frankly telling, they lied about it. You remember that. But here's the thing I want you to notice. Peter was telling this same principle that I led from early, read from early writings. Acts, the fifth chapter, and the fourth verse. This is Peter talking. We'll read the third verse with it. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Had the church required Ananias to do that? Why no? Why did he do it? Whose decision was it? His own decision. Now who had moved upon his heart to do it? The Holy Spirit. Yes. Then he had been unhappy about it afterward. But my point is this. Peter recognized that it wasn't required for everybody to sell their property all at the same time and turn it in. That's right there in the Bible. Now I read it here in early writings. All right. Now, if Peter recognized that, and the Lord's messenger to the remnant recognized it, would it be a good thing for us to recognize? And remember, friends, once you admit that, you recognize two things. First, you recognize that you're not supposed to settle that for anybody else. Is that right? And second, you recognize that you are supposed to settle it for yourself. That you're to get from God wisdom and guidance as to what to do with your property even if your property is only a thin dime, friend. You're to look to God for guidance in what he wants you to do about it, right? Very important and wonderful, friend. The God that rules all space, all creation, is willing to teach me what to do with whatever he's put in my hands, whether it be large or small, as men rate well. All right. Now, I want to give another caution. And that is that God doesn't want us to press poor people to give the money they need to take care of their family. Why, you say, Brother Frizee, is that really true? Yes, that's true. I'll read that to you in volume 3, page 411. Our God is not a taskmaster and does not require the poor man to give means to the cause that belongs to his family and that should be used to keep them in comfort and above pinching want. That's clear, isn't it? Yes. Let me read it again. Our God is not a taskmaster and does not require the poor man to give means to the cause that belongs to his family and that should be used to keep them in comfort and above pinching want. Very well. You say, well, what about the tithe? Yes, this is not talking about tithe. This is talking about what? Offering. Offering, yes. Should everybody pay tithe no matter how poor he is? Why, sure. And after all, friends, we don't give tithe. What do we do? We pay it. Yes. Who does the tithe belong to? God. Did he ever give to us, shall I say, did he ever give to us the responsibility of giving him the tithe? No. 
He just gave us the responsibility of handling it to see whether we'd be what? Honest. That's all. That's what the tithe tests. The tithe doesn't test our gratitude. It tests our honesty. That's right. But the offerings test our gratitude. Is the tithe a certain amount or indefinite? It's certain. What about the offering? Oh, yeah. They might be large or small. Do you think that a rich man could give a greater proportion of offerings than a poor man? Yes. Quite often works the other way. Yes. Just take, for example, whatever amount of money you're getting. If you'd get a hundred, if, you, if you're getting a hundred dollars a month, suppose overnight you'd get two hundred dollars. Would you increase your offerings twice what you've been giving? Should you increase them more than twice? Why, sure, why not? It shouldn't cost more. It shouldn't cost twice as much to feed you, twice as much to clothe you, twice as much to house you, twice as much and all the rest, should it? No. Quite often it does. It shouldn't. All right. Well, I leave that with you. Now let's come back to the point we're studying. God, while he wants the poor man to have a part in the tithe. Then he wants him to have a part in some offerings, too. Jesus showed that when he told the, when he gave recognition to that poor widow. You say, yes, but Brother Perzee, she gave her all. Yes, she did. That was an unusual case, wasn't it? And God commented on it in order to encourage other people. Who moved upon her to do that? The Holy Spirit moved upon her to do it. My dear friends, when the Holy Spirit moves upon a poor person to give all they have, let them do it. But let them be sure that it's the Holy Spirit that's moving on them to do it. Do you see what I mean? Let them be sure that it's the Holy Spirit. Now, because of that principle, this same paragraph, beginning on page 410, warns against urgent calls and pressure on this matter of raising gifts and offerings. You know, friends, I have found through the years that it isn't necessary to bring pressure in order to raise gifts for God. No, all that's necessary to do what Moses did. Moses proclaimed that there was an opportunity to give, that there was a need, and then he left it with the people as to what they gave and how much. Did it work all right? It works today. It works today. Why, this page 411 says that in some cases, the people who have made the calls should become acquainted with the ability of those who respond to their appeals and should not allow the poor to pay large pledges. Isn't that interesting, friend? Why, sure. What's the use of having a poor man make, pay, make and pay large pledges and then have to take up an offering to feed his family? Now there's another caution that I want to give you. You say, well, Brother Frizzi, if you keep on, there won't be much left to give any money out of. Well, that'll be all right if there isn't any left. But we'll see. I want to read you something now from volume 7, 293. Not only does God want the poor man to think about taking care of his family, he wants people who can, you and me and the next one, he wants people who can to think about laying by a little for what, what is it we call it, a, what kind of a day? A rainy day. Yes, all right. Now, I'll read that to you. It doesn't say rainy day, but you see a, 
doesn't mean that. Volume 7, 293. Some workers are so situated as to be able to lay by a little from their salary. And this they should do, if possible, to meet an emergency. What word in there stands for rainy day? Emergency. emergency. Yeah. Is it a lack of faith to have a little laid by for an emergency? Why, no. If you have a chance to do it and don't do it, that might be a lack of faith. Because all faith is, is believing what God says. Now notice. This indicates that not everybody might be able to do it. But it says, this they should do if possible to meet an emergency. And friends, I'll tell you something interesting. This matter of saving a little is not a matter so much of how much you give. It's a matter of a state of mind and an attitude of heart. Yes, sir? There are some people that if all they got was just a few dollars a month, they'd be laying by at least a few pennies every month. They'd have a little more at Christmas time than they had at New Year's. That's right. And there are other people that no matter how much you would increase their wages, their income, they never would have any saved because they would either spend it on themselves or there are other generous hearts that would always see so many places to put it. And aren't there friends? Why, bless your heart. There's just so many places to put money. And you don't have to waste a nickel of it. You can have it all gone and borrow money and pay interest on it to put out to the different places of need. And I wonder why. I wonder why. Oh, my friends, God wants to teach us a balance. He wants us to be generous and, have, and he wants us to have good sense. He wants us to use business judgment and not be stingy and niggardly. This whole matter of handling money is a part of character development and the development of the mind, the, uh, the powers of reason and intelligence. All right, well, we found these cautions then. First, that God doesn't require everybody to sell and give sums at the same time. He'll teach everybody that'll listen. Second, the poor are not to give what they need to keep their families from pinching off. Third, those people who can are encouraged to put by a little for emergency. Now, with all those cautions before you, I want to give you some other cautions. And you should think of about what I'm about to say every time there's a call for means. Remember this. I want you to think of all the other call for me. I put it this way. Suppose you had a family of children. And you have a kettle here of stew. And there's one of the babies that starts crying. You say, oh yes, the baby's hungry. So you start to put the stew in the bowl for that baby. Would it be a good plan to see how many other bowls there were around the table? Would it? Yes. yes. Even if all the other children weren't crying right there, they might cry if the kettle of stew didn't get clear around the table. Mightn't they? Yes. That's right. 
And so whenever you hear of a call for means, think about all the other things that you may need to think about. Now I'm going to make a call in a few minutes, but I'm going to tell you first of quite a number of other things that you want to think about. First of all, every person should think about his tithe. In a sense, that's something separate, as we've already said. But should you remember that that's 10% of all your increase? That's right. That's right. So, if your income should increase this year, remember, 10% of it's already earmarked. You don't have that to meet these calls for means. Am I right? That's tough. All right. Then I want to ask you about some other things. What about the foreign mission program and the home mission program? What about Sabbath school? What about in-gathering? What about the week of sacrifice? Are all those to be considered? Yes. And many of us have formed the habit of just giving, giving, giving as those various offerings are taken. Is it a good habit? Continual giving starves covetousness to death, we're told of. Now, beside that, there are special appeals. For instance, two weeks ago, we took up offering for religious liberty in the Liberty Magazine. Well, thank the Lord. God's people here responded with over $200. Aren't we thankful for that? Yes. Well, next January, that'll come again. And we'll be glad again to respond and make it possible for people to have that wonderful magazine. Our conference is beginning to build an academy now. Some of you have already responded. Some of you will be given an opportunity to respond to the appeal for funds to build an academy down at Reeves for the Georgia Cumberland Conference. That will be a special appeal, and it will take a special lift over quite a period of time. All of these things are to be thought of. Then besides all these offerings for the foreign mission field, the home mission field, the church expense, the missionary work, and these special projects, then let me tell you one more thing that we mustn't forget, and that is the poor, the poor. Around us are poor people, and they're going to be more friends. This book says, He that hath pity on the poor lendeth unto the Lord. Notice this wonderful promise over here in the 41st Psalm about the man that looks after the poor. Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. So are we to consider the poor? Yes. And in volume 1, page 194, you read a warning about men that give large gifts to the church and forget the poor right next door to them. So you see, friends, we're to keep all these things in mind. Well, now, after we've gotten all through that, is there any room for me to make another appeal for something else tonight? What do you think? Well, I'll have to leave that with each one of you. But you know... Fifty-three years ago, when a little self-supporting school was getting started on the banks of the Cumberland, up near Nashville, the servant of the Lord out at St. Helena sat down and wrote a little message which was printed in a four-page tract. If any of you don't have a copy, I'll be glad to put one in your hand. 
and in it. The Lord's messenger put down these words concerning a self-supporting school, which was destined, as that tract said, to train students to go out and start other self-supporting schools. Some of the people trained there are here tonight, thank the Lord. This is what the Lord's messenger said. Every means possible should be devised to establish schools of the Madison order. And those who lend their support and means to this work are aiding the cause of God. I am instructed to say to those who have means, help the work at Madison. That was the purpose, that was her purpose in writing that tract and sending it up, was to encourage people to put money into that work, to train students to go out and establish other schools of that kind. Thank the Lord, friends, those appeals were listened to by many people over the country. Why, for a number of years out there in that valley where Sister White lived, she and her neighbors used to gather dried fruit and send it down here to the south to help the people at Madison and the little self-supporting schools. The prophet of God encouraged that. Some of the prunes came from her own prune orchard. But it wasn't just prunes that came. It was money, friend. Money and more money. It took money to get it started. It's taken money to make it go forward. And in this work here at Wildwood, thank God through the years, God has moved upon the hearts of people to put money into this program as well as their labors. And I ask you this, friends, if God moves upon the hearts of people that aren't even here to put money into this, to put up these buildings, make this equipment possible, if God moves upon the hearts of people far away to do that, do you think it would be any strange thing if he moved upon our hearts whose lives are right in the program? Ah, oh, no, nothing strange about that. In fact, friends, if my life is in something, I'm glad to have my money in it too. If it's worth my toy, then it's worth my money. And so I'm thankful that from time to time, you and I have had the opportunity, along with laying down the offering of our lives for this program, to lay down gifts of love, gifts of money. Now tonight, since our work is extending, instead of putting before you one object, as I did two years ago, or two objects as I did last year, I'm going to give you three things. Next year it may be four, for all I know. We still have the opportunity of giving. But there are three things that I'm going to tell you about tonight. In fact, I was intending to bring you four things tonight. But when I was talking it over with Brother Rich, Brother Rich said to me, yes, we need to raise money for the new sanitarium, but he said there'll have to be so much money raised for that, and that will doubtless come largely from the people of the world. He said, I think you'd better let the folks tonight have the opportunity of giving for some of these other projects. And I think that was both a generous and a wise statement from Brother Rich, our sanitarium manager. Now the three things that I want to give you an opportunity to give for tonight. 
One is the little chapel that our New England group are hoping to build down at New England. Most of you have heard about that, haven't you? Last year, in the providence of God, we were able to buy a lot down there, and several dollars have been raised for it. The footings have been poured, but now we need money to go on up with the walls and put the roof on and finish it up this year. This year. I'm really expecting, brethren, that, uh, well, I won't try to set a date, for I'm not a prophet. But uh, I'm expecting before many months go by to see a beautiful little chapel lying, uh, standing there in that cedar and pine grove down there in New England. How many of you have been down there? May I see your hand? Oh, yes. Well, when we get started with the meetings down there, you'll all want to come down, but you mustn't all come the same day, maybe. At any rate, I know that the Lord's going to move on the hearts of some of you who want to have a part in that tonight. We're going to take pledges for that, for the New England Chapel, tonight. You like the sound of that, Brother Wilson? Yes, well, I do too. Now we have another project that we want to remind you of. You remember that uh, two years ago we took up an offering for the tabernacle that's to be built here on these grounds. You've all been here, most of you have, times when people were standing in this chapel. Why? There was no more room for them to sit down. And we need a place of meeting where, instead of scores, hundreds of people can come to hear the message. Is that right? Now, thank the Lord, we have several dollars toward that that was raised last year and year before but we still don't have enough to build a tabernacle. We need several thousand dollars to build that tabernacle that we don't have. And God is going to impress somebody here tonight to have a part in it. And if that's the particular thing that God tells you to put money into, friends, let me tell you that's a glorious opportunity and you'll see souls in the kingdom of God because of it. Now the third thing that I want to give you an opportunity for has to do with the coming of the refugees. You've heard about that, haven't you? You know that last year, about this time, we presented that matter and we took up pledges for the building of a home up in the hollow. Well, that's not a dream anymore. It's up there. It's nearly finished. But we still need several hundred dollars to complete the payment for the material that's going into that building. And there's still a bit of work to be done in finishing it up. But that's only half the story. We need some more. And we have already laid plans to build another home this year for some more refugees. Because they're coming, friends. They're coming. And we want to build another home, simple, well-built, but economical, where people can be brought and be blessed and helped and trained. Oh, friends, I'm thankful for the challenge of the coming of the refugees, aren't you? And so I want to bring you those, two, those three projects tonight. The New England Chapel, the Tabernacle, and the New Homes for the Refugees. Those three projects. Now, I want to give you two different ways to pledge on this. Some of you would like to give a lump sum 
for any or all of these projects that I've mentioned. Some of you would like to give a lump sum. It might be a dollar. That might be as big a gift as the poor widow gave that time. That might be all that you could, could give. It might be less than a dollar. It might be $10, $100, $1,000, I don't know what God has entrusted you with. I don't know what God's going to impress you to give. All I can say is, friends, I've read you God's promises tonight that you can be taught of whom? Taught of God. And we're going to have prayer here and ask God to tell us what to do. And I believe he will if we let him. What do you say? Yes. You may want to give a lump sum. Again, you may like to make a monthly pledge. Now January's gone, we're in February. So we're going to take pledges for 11 months. We're going to take pledges for February, March, April, and so on through December. And if you gave $5 a month for 11 months, that'd be how much? $55. If you gave $10 a month for 11 months, that'd be $110. That's right. And if some of you children should give 10 cents a month for 11 months, that'd be how much? Dollar and 10 cents. That's right. And so the Lord is going to impress our minds on that. Now we're going to kneel down and pray here together and just ask the Lord. We're going to spend a moment or two in silent prayer. And I'm going to ask Brother Jensen if he'll pray in behalf of all of us that the Lord will move on our hearts, just a short prayer. And then when we get up from prayer, I'm going to have these cards passed out. And we'll let the Lord help us write down on the paper what he's written down in our hearts while we pray. Let us pray. People that hear the message can come and learn how to live what they hear. Is that right? And then you know about this sanitarium that's in the offing. That's where some of the people that come to hear the message in the tabernacle will have to be brought so the doctor and the nurses can care for them. Is that right? Be praying about that. I'm sure of this. We're going to have to get enlargement of the heart in order to take care of all these matters. What do you say? But that'll be a good kind of hypertrophy. Now... Uh, I wish we could hear that quartet sing again. There's a church in the valley by the wildwood, no loveliest place in the dale. No spot is so dear to my childhood as a little brown church in the vale.
Chattanooga, he never knows for sure he'll come home. Isn't that right? Now, I've traveled several thousand miles before I'll see you again on the Friday night Vesper service. I'd just like to leave you this closing word. While we can't make an appointment for sure to meet back here, we plan to be together, of course, again. We all plan that way. There's one appointment we can make, dear friends, and be sure to meet it. And that's to meet in the chariot on that seven-day trip through space. That's the only space trip that's certain, isn't it? And that's eternally certain. Thank God we can do it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.